0: This morning's scripture focus is found in First Samuel 15:10 through23. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, "I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions." So Samuel became, became angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel. Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek. And I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, as you're taking your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 15, to the passage that was read for us a moment ago. And if you were able to find your way to 1 Samuel, as you've been tracking along uh, in our series titled, When Mets Meets Mercy, and you kind of know your way to this book, we talked that as a win uh, for the series as we're getting to know our Bibles and we're getting to know our Old Testaments. And so 1 Samuel chapter 15, as you're finding your way there, I'm going to voice a prayer over our time in the word today heavenly fathers we open up our bibles would you open up our eyes to see beauty in its pages would you open our hearts to receive your word today that your word would create faith where faith is not present that your word would sustain faith where faith is uh, weakening i pray that your worth would strengthen faith in all of your people in response to the word that you have for us today God, we love you, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the most well-written television shows thus far in the 21st century is AMC's, or was AMC's, uh, series titled "The Bra- uh, Breaking Bad." Breaking Bad. I can't get words out today, but Breaking Bad. Now, Breaking Bad is a story that chronicles the tragic and sad moral decline of a man named Walter White. Now when we first meet Walter White in the series, he is a uh, relatively modest family man. He loves his family, he wants to care for his family, and, and he works hard to do just that. But after he is diagnosed with cancer, he begins to fear uh, his inability to pay the medical bills. And so uh, he begins to make a series of small cons- uh, compromises. And these small compromises would soon erupt into major uh, casualties and reap major consequences in his life as this former science teacher uh, would soon become one of the world's most powerful producers of, of drugs, a drug in particular known as meth. And so the whole series chronicles his downward spiral as we begin to witness Walter White Breaking Bad, hence the title. Now, when you step into the story of Saul in 1 Samuel, I like to see Saul as sort of the Walter White of the Old Testament, because as we've been tracking along with his story up till now, he breaks bad. We begin to see in his life, even though when we first meet him in chapter 10, he is a modest, modest, a modest young man who serves his family well. He cares for his family. He listens to his father. He goes out searching for lost sheep. He's he doesn't think of himself too highly. In fact, Samuel reiterates in this passage that that when he first met Saul, he did not think too highly of himself. And this was a young man who probably was tempted to do so, as we're told, that he was physically taller and of a more uh, impressive stature than other Israelites, but even though he kind of occupied this high physical position amongst the people of Israel, he did not allow that to go to his head, or at least we assume in his younger years, he, wasn't, he did not consider himself to be superior to those around him. But after Saul becomes king and he's anointed and he's installed as Israel's first king, we begin to witness over the past several weeks a series of small compromises that eventually erupt into uh, a moral catastrophe. And we see Saul over the course of these past few weeks breaking bad. And the climax of his breaking bad really kind of happens in this chapter. This is one of the saddest chapters in all of the Bible, because this is the moment when the final nail is driven into Saul's coffin as Israel's first king. This is the moment where Saul disqualifies himself from the role that he was given by God to lead God's people. His throne is literally ripped from his hands by the justice, by the justice of God. Now, as you heard that passage read over us a moment ago, some alarm bells started probably ringing in your head as you're trying to make sense of what the Lord commanded Saul to do and what Saul failed to do as king. There's all types of questions and potential controversies that arise from this particular chapter. And so as we begin to kind of walk through this story today, let me, let me clarify the type of approach we should take to this to the themes that are found in this chapter. Because the themes in this chapter are tough. They are uh, gut-wrenching for a variety of reasons. Now, the temptation in a cultural climate like ours right now, a cultural climate where notions of justice is what everyone everywhere is talking about all the time and And we are engaging in those conversations on different fronts as everybody's trying to figure out what is just and what is true and what is right and what is wrong. And and as we kind of hear those conversations taking place and as we find our place in the midst of those conversations as well, we must be careful that we do not impose our muddy and oftentimes misshaped definitions of justice upon God's execution of justice in this particular text. And in order to avoid that, we must recognize that justice in Scripture is twofold. When you think about the dimensions of justice in the Bible, you're going to find two types of dimensions. On one hand, you have a dimension that is corporate or communal, where God's justice falls upon a whole group of people, and they are treated as a singular whole. But on the other hand, when you hear about God's justice in the Bible, there's an individual or a personal dimension to it as well. Now, living in the Western Hemisphere, we get the individual dimension really, really well. That comes easy to us. We believe individuals should be held accountable for the decisions that they make, and they are responsible for the lives that they live. We kind of get that, but when it comes to the communal or the corporate expressions of divine justice found in the Bible, we have a harder time with this. Our hyper-individualism prohibits us from identifying with communal sins and understanding communal or corporate consequences. So we step into a passage like this, and when the Lord calls for the destruction of an entire people, he calls for the destruction of the Amalekite people, we instinctively want to go to bat and defend the individuals amongst them. And we want to ask questions. What about the women? What about the children? What about the infants born among them? How are we to make sense? Are they all supposed to be wiped out? And so, living in the West, we have a really hard time with moments like this that pop up a few times in the scriptures. But if you were to cross hemispheres and you were to move out of the Western hemisphere of our world and step into an Eastern context, you'll find that the exact opposite is true. You'll find that in Eastern contexts and in the Eastern hemisphere of our world, their, their cultures understand the justice of communal or corporate consequences. In the Eastern hemisphere of our world, people recognize that often a people's fate is shared, that people groups rise and fall together. They live or die together. Cultures eastward value what's called interdependency, and they see that as morally right and just, whereas cultures on our side of the world, we tend to value independency and individualism. So we have a hard time thinking about what's happening in a passage like this. But if we just step back for a moment and we think about it, I think we can get there. I think we can wrap our minds around kind of the justice of what's happening in this text if we maybe look at this analogy. You know, a child can suffer because of his parents or her parents' sins. Families can put their uh, future generation or the future generation of their kids or their kids' kids, families can put those generations in jeopardy due to their sinful behavior or their sinful choices. So take, for example, suppose a mom and a dad like to hit up the casino, and so they love going and gambling, they won't stop, and eventually they can't stop, and so they just blow through all of their finances, and that results in crippling debt for them and their family. They're in debt, they're in poverty, and what you find in those situations is that mom and dad aren't the only ones who hurt in those situations, Any kids that they have, and perhaps their kids' kids, will suffer the consequences of those sinful decisions and of those sinful actions. That's why when you and I only think of ourselves as individuals, we only think of ourselves and our lives and our choices and our sin. That's why when we do that, we wind up jeopardizing the well-being of people we're connected to and people that we are connected with. Sin always has consequences that extend beyond the life of an individual who commits those sins. And so all throughout Scripture, you find people groups being judged. Groups like the Amalekites. And before you cry foul, let me, let me remind you that that's the story of the fall, isn't it? I was born into this world with a sin nature that I inherited from what went down in Eden. You were born into this world with a sin nature that you inherited from what went down in Eden. The story of the fall is the story of collective, of of humanity as as a shared collective experiencing the consequences of sin and disobedience, and we continue to reap the fruit of that Today. And so what we see when we just think about the big picture of the fall, we can kind of see the analogy and begin to see, or at least try to start moving towards an understanding of how what God calls for in this text is, is just. And when you think about the nature of the world that we live in, Western cultures, Eastern cultures, there's a sense in which when it comes to justice, both the East and the West are right. And all throughout Scripture, there is a corporate, communal shared dimension of justice and there is individual or personal dimensions of justice as well. The Bible does teach that one day individuals will stand before God and give an account for the lives that they live in this world. And when you and I stand before God in that capacity, remember that you are standing before a God who is entirely just and he isn't eternally merciful And that God is going to do right with every person, no matter who they were connected to in this world, and no matter what consequences they may have suffered in this life, the Lord will do right with every single individual. And so we just want to kind of keep that framework of divine justice in our minds as we consider a story like this. Because this story puts before us, or the chief concern of this text, is the sin of a man named Saul. It's the sin of King Saul. Notice verse 11. Verse 11, the Lord tells Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. Now, what were those instructions? What instructions did Saul fail to carry out completely? Now, to answer that, you go up the page to verse 1 and listen to what Verse 1 says, Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them; kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now that's intense. Those are some intense instructions. And if you were to look at some of the language of the old te- of of the of Hebrew that is being used, there's one word that kind of describes this these instructions, the kind of warfare that the Lord is calling Saul to lead against the Amalekites. It's a word known as "hetam," and "hetam" is this is this Warfare that is practiced only against peoples who have come under the Lord's most severest form of judgment and justice. And it pops up a few times in the Old Testament. Another example would be what happened at Jericho when the people of Israel were getting ready to enter the promised land. And the walls of Jericho falls and the people of Jericho are wiped out. Those are intense moments, but here's the deal. There's a difference between something being intense and something being unjust. Just because something is intense, that does not mean it is unjust. Now to understand the justice again behind what's going down here, you've got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, you have the story of the Lord calling a man named Abraham to be his own. And he established a unique relationship with Abraham. It's called a covenant And within this covenant with Abraham, God made promises, and uh, these promises that were both to bless and to curse, to judge and to save. The Lord wrapped both of those up in his covenant promises to Abraham. So you get to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And the Lord says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And so when Abraham's descendants were living as slaves in Egypt, eventually the Lord brings them out of Egypt. He redeems them. And and we're told in the story of Exodus that as the people were leaving Egypt and moving towards the promised land, they found themselves opposed by a people group. That people group was the Amalekites. And the Amalekites stood against Israel. In fact, they were, I think, the first people group to stand against Israel other than Egypt. And as they're moving towards the promised land, the Amalekites curse Israel and they treat Israel with contempt. And so they attack and they sought to slaughter the people of Israel in the wilderness. And then the Lord held true to his promise. And he made this statement in Exodus chapter 17 about this group of people. He said, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And I will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So do you see the the connection? The Amalekites cursed Israel. And the Lord held true to his covenant promises to Abraham, a promise he made to curse people who would curse his people. And we see that being played out in this story. But you also see... a a silver lining in this narrative as well. It's real subtle, but if you look up at verse 6, there's another people group that's present here. You have the Amalekites. They're going to be slaughtered. But then you have a group known as the Kenites, and the Kenites are spared. Notice verse 6. It says that he warned the Kenites... Since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Get away from the Amalekites, or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. And so what he's saying there, he's saying when the Amalekites were cursing Israel and then falling under the curse of God, the Kenites blessed Israel, and because they blessed Israel, they find themselves blessed by God. And so they are spared in this moment. They are given time to flee and to get away from what's about to go down with the Amalekites. It's a beautiful dynamic. Because what's unfolding in this story is an example of God fulfilling his covenant promises. And within his covenant promises, there there are promises to bless and to save. And there are promises to curse and to judge. Our God does both. And if we do not have a category for both in our understanding of who God is and what God is about, we're not going to relate properly to the God of Scripture. We're not going to relate properly to the God who sent his son Jesus into the world to live and to die, but to rise again. And so I want to think about these dynamics, the promises to bless and to curse. Now think about Saul. So those were his instructions. I want you to wipe out the Amalekites that Saul was to serve as an instrument of divine justice. He was to fulfill God's promise to curse the Amalekite people. That's what he was told to do. But Saul fails to do that. He doesn't do what the Lord called him to do. And so he attacks and slaughtered a lot of the Amalekites, but he did not wipe them out. He held back. He held back for reasons we'll see here in a moment. But what you ultimately find Saul doing is that Saul opts to edit the Lord's instructions, and he picks and chooses how far to go and what to do in response to the Lord has said to him. And at this point, we begin to see something about the nature of sin, and one crucial aspect of the nature of sin is that sin is always kind of self-obsessed, that sin is self-obsessive, and you kind of find Saul moving in this direction, because Saul acts in a way that puts himself above the Lord's word and above the Lord's instructions. And this was a big, this was a far cry from where Saul was when Samuel first met him in verse 17. Samuel said to Saul, you once considered yourself unimportant, but now you think you're so important that you can edit and change the Lord's instructions to you, that's a problem. You see, sin is self-obsessive, and that means that sin always exaggerates the self's importance. That sin always puffs us up. Sin always causes us to occupy a position that we were not originally created to occupy. We were not created to call the shots, necessarily. We weren't created to determine what is right and what is wrong. We weren't created to determine what is true and what is just. No, we were created to submit to what God had already declared in line with his character and in line with his infinite wisdom and knowledge, what is right and wrong, what is true and what is just. Our ethics, our values, our understanding of what is true and just, right and wrong, it's entirely derived. It is not determined by us. We derive our understanding of justice from God's perspective. We don't determine or declare it for ourselves. And this is where Saul begins to go wrong. He thinks too highly of himself as he begins editing and changing the Lord's instructions. He's not living in a derived position. He's living in a declaring or determining position. And this is where human beings find themselves today. This is why there's so much confusion and conflict in society. Human beings are trying to declare what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is just. We're not living in a way that derives all of that understanding and derives those instructions from the Lord and what he has revealed to us. And so sin is self-obsessive. It exaggerates the self's importance, and we find ourselves pushing the Lord out from being the center of reality from which all of life and truth and beauty is derived. Instead, we put ourselves in that central position, and we try to declare and determine that for ourselves. And so this was Saul's error. But not only does sin exaggerate the self's importance, here you really get to the heart of the matter when you see sin often seeks the self's enrichment. It seeks the self-enrichment. Here's the reason why Saul did not ultimately obey the Lord's command. It wasn't because he felt sorry for the Amalekites. This wasn't a move of charity and mercy and grace on Saul's part. He disobeyed because he saw in this moment an opportunity to enrich himself, to fatten his pockets, to build his kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Notice verse 8. It says that Saul captured King Agag of Amalek alive. But he completely destroyed all the, rest, all the rest of the people with a sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag, he was the leader of the Amalekites, and the best, there's the word, and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams, and the best of everything else. And then it says they were not willing to destroy them because they did destroy, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. And so here's what goes down. Rather than serving as an instrument of divine justice, executing and fulfilling the Lord's instructions, Saul takes it upon himself to enrich himself. And the moment he starts trying to enrich himself as a result of the demise of the Amalekites, in that moment, Saul started turning Israel into an imperialist nation. Imperialism is what happens when nations conquer other nations in order to enrich themselves. Imperialism is when people are exploited and And people are conquered and their resources are taken and leveraged for self-serving and self-enriching purposes. And this is a huge problem, and this is one of the things the Bible is falsely accused of promoting. We read moments like this, and sometimes the Bible is accused of being a, a book that supports and encourages imperialism, but understand that Saul's movement against the Amalekites and the way he went about it It betrayed what the Lord instructed him to do. The Lord set Saul up over Israel, and remember, Israel was set up to be a unique people, a holy people, a people that showed the world what life looks like when God is in charge, when everything is derived from him and nothing is determined by us. That's the kind of nation Israel was supposed to be. This meant that the people of Israel were to go about their global relations, how they interacted with the surrounding nations, they were to do that differently. In every other people group, it was quite common to do what Saul is doing here. You conquer a people, then you take what's best for yourself. You enrich yourself. That's what imperialism does. But Saul wasn't instructed by the Lord to do that. Saul was to wipe out everything and not take a single thing for himself. He was not supposed to profit from the demise of the Amalekites in any way, shape, or form. And so the moment he seeks to do so, His actions become unjust. His actions become imperialistic. His actions become sinful. But that's what sin does, right? Sin not only exaggerates the self's importance, sin seeks to enrich, or it seeks the self's enrichment, even at the expense and the exploitation of others. Saul is selective in his obedience here, and those who are under his command are. Selective in their obedience to the Lord and what they represent is an early attempt that has been repeated countless times throughout history to profit off the demise and the exploitation of others. But what you're going to find is that Saul's efforts will prove futile as the Lord will call him on it and the Lord's justice will come to Saul's life. And so when Samuel shows up and he begins to engage Saul in a conversation, when he was asked... When he asks Saul, why did you disobey the Lord's command? Saul immediately gets defensive and he begins to defend his actions and he defends his efforts and even claims in verse 24, he claims to have been obedient. He says, but I did obey the Lord. See, when it comes to the nature of sin, sin is self-obsessive, but sin is also self-deceptive. That so often sin deceives us into thinking that what we are doing is right, what we are doing is obedient, what we are doing is just all the while the Lord sees things differently, all the while the Lord sees things in a contradictory fashion. And so what happens is we kind of follow in Saul's ilk and we begin to deceive ourselves into thinking we can make excuses for our disobedience. We can make excuses so that what we did might suddenly be seen as an obedient or a wise act as opposed to a disobedient and a foolish act. And so what you have in the exchange between Saul and Samuel is a series of of five excuses. And Saul offers five excuses that are often repeated in my life and stands to reason these excuses often pop up in your lives as well. Hear his first excuse. His first self-deceived excuse pops up when he says, you know, I've done some good things. This is what he says in verse 20. He says, I may have spared Agag, but I destroyed everything else as I was, as I was told to do. And so he says, yeah, I may have spared him, but did you see what else I've done? I, I followed the Lord's commands up to this point, And he begins to drop this excuse. And this excuse is designed to minimize the seriousness of his disobedience, the seriousness of his sin. And one of the biggest lessons of this story is that partial obedience is not what God requires in any situation. Partial obedience is never justified that the Lord requires total obedience from his people because total obedience requires total trust. And so we think about how this excuse pops up in our own lives, and we may think to ourselves, you know, I may have lingered on that Instagram image for a few minutes, but I didn't click follow. I could have clicked follow, but I didn't. And we're going to make that excuse. Well, think about the good I've done. I went far, but I didn't go that far we say things, you know, I got in a fight with someone at church, and I argued with them, and I became angry with that person in an unjust capacity, but at least I was at church. The fight could have taken place somewhere else, but it took place at church. At least I go there, and we begin to make excuses, calling attention to what we consider to be good things we have done, ignoring the sinful things that we have actually committed to. And so partial obedience is always disobedience, and no excuse we give can ever overcome that. The second excuse that Saul gives is that he essentially says, well, I'm just like everyone else. You notice how Saul pointed to the troops, and he said, look, the troops, they they took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder. They did this. Don't single me out. Everyone sins. And you can just hear Saul making the same excuse that we hear over and over and over again, to err is human. And so we kind of justify our sin by saying, well, that's just human nature. That's just what we are like. And on one sense, that's true. But on a much greater sense, that's not true. Sometimes we say that we sin because that's what it means to be human. But do you understand that sin always dehumanizes? Sin doesn't humanize anyone. And so when we sin, it's not that we are acting out what it means to be human. When we sin, we are acting out what it means to be less than human. To be human, as one theologian once put it, to be human is the, or the glory of God is a human being who's fully alive. But we're told that sin causes us to fall short of that glory. And so if sin is falling short of the glory of God, when we settle for it or we excuse it, we are being less than human. We are falling short of the glory for which we were created and the glory that we are supposed to display and so we want to kind of do away with that excuse because that excuse is wrapped up in a distorted understanding of what it means to be human. Sin always dehumanizes, it never humanizes. And then we go on to his third excuse. Saul says, I did what seemed reason- reasonable, I did what I thought was right, I did what I thought was wise, I did what I thought was practical. He says essentially why kill all those animals it seems like such a waste we could take it back to our place and use it we can even devote some to the lord's worship and make some offerings to the lord on the basis on the on the plunder that we've taken and the moment he drops that excuse we begin to think about how that's that's the way nations justify imperialism all the time they say well if we conquer that land and those people then we can put their resources to better use this is what Saul is saying. He's getting practical. He's doing what seems right in his own eyes. And this is why we must be careful with different technological advancements and some of the ethical questions that are raised with things, with all kinds of technologies that are creeping up so quickly in our day and age is to not be so quick to embrace something because it is technological or because it's right. Let's listen to the reasons. Let's think about what could go wrong with certain things so that we're not so quick to do what seems right or what seems reasonable, recognizing that we as human beings are very limited in our, in our point of view. We don't see things purely. We don't see things clearly. There are consequences that come from our choices that we do not always anticipate and we probably should. So there's a sense in which we need to slow down a little bit and be more sober minded when we begin to think about all the things that are popping up and developing in our day and age. But then the fourth excuse that Saul says is that he essentially <laughs> he essentially says, I, you know, I did this for God. It may have technically been a sin, but if my motives and intentions are good, then everything's cool, right? Because we can take those animals and we can offer them up to the Lord. Sounds a lot like that family who gambles, but they justify their gambling and their addiction to that self-destructing tendency. They, they move in that direction saying, well, if I win, I'm just going to tithe everything. I'm doing this for the Lord, I'm doing this for God, and they're trying to find a way to be at peace with their disrupted conscience. Or perhaps what may be more common amongst us is that we gossip and we say things like, well, I just thought you should know. And we kind of sprinkle a little holy water upon that act, thinking, well, this will sanctify it. It might technically be gossip, but I'm doing it for a good reason. And we're just sprinkling some holy water, we're trying to sanctify something that can't be that can't be sanctified. Or you think about an article I read this past week about a tendency pastors today have of plagiarizing other pastors' sermons. It's happening all the time. Pastors hear a good sermon and rather than taking, giving credit or, or acknowledging who they've learned from or gleaned from, they just take it and run with it. And they present material as if it is their own interact, the result of their own interaction with the Lord. And And then they try to justify it. Well, I'm doing this for the Lord, right? It's the Lord's word being heard. That's all that matters. Well, yes, but also no. You see, the Lord never needs you and I to break his commands in order to fulfill his will. We never break his commands to fulfill his will. The Lord's not dependent upon those types of maneuvers and upon those types of efforts. But then you get the fifth excuse. The fifth excuse that Saul says in verse 24, he essentially says, well, I was afraid. And since I was afraid, I'm justified in what I did. Notice verse 24, he said, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. But fearing people does not justify disobeying God, no matter what threat those people may pose against you. This was Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 10, when he said, do not fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, Rather, fear him that is the Lord who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear is not an excuse that removes us from the crosshairs of divine justice that that sin creates. Now, these type of excuses pop up in our lives often when we're confronted with our own sin. But one of the things we need to think about today, too, is that these type of excuses are ones that we use when we're trying to make excuses for other people's sins. We often give these excuses when we're confronted with other people's sinful decisions and actions, and so we use these excuses to minimize the seriousness of what they are doing. And a lot of times we're doing this under the guise of love, or under the guise of compassion, or under the guise of mercy. And so we drop these excuses to try to justify other people's complex lives, The fact that people are breaking bad all around us, and we try to explain it away or excuse it away with these types of statements. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can excuse sin, and we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can excuse the sin of others, but this passage reminds us that the Lord sees through every single excuse. And this passage reminds us that the Lord's justice will be served in one way, shape, or form in every situation. But not only do we try to excuse sin, we also try to conceal it. You see this in Saul's example as well. Because eventually Saul submits to the charges that were brought against him, and he doesn't want to lose his kingdom. So in desperation, he falls to the ground, and he pleads with Samuel for help. And as Samuel turns to move away from him, he reaches out his hand, and he grabs his robe. And the robe begins to tear, and Samuel turns, and, and that moment becomes a parable for how the Lord was ripping the kingdom from Saul's grasp, from Saul's hands. And when that happens, Saul responds rightly. He says the right thing in verse 24 when he says, I have sinned. And he should have just stopped there. I have sinned, period, but Saul couldn't stop there. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we try to conceal our sin or to hide our sin, it's always brought into the light that in time our sin will always be exposed. In Saul's case, it comes out quickly. His sin comes out quickly in the very next sentence because it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so after saying, I have sinned, then notice what he says. He says, please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. It's subtle, but it's significant. It turns out that Saul was more concerned with his reputation before his people than he was with being reconciled to his God. This is one reason we don't confess our sin very easily. Because if we confess our sin, we may drop in the eyes of others, but while we are refusing to confess our sin, we find ourselves in a either experiencing relational distance from the Lord or being alienated from him all together. And so this moment, Saul is being exposed and he's really doing that to himself as he is Acknowledging that he's more concerned with his reputation than he is with his reconciliation. And that's a huge, huge problem. Even in repentance, Saul is self-obsessed. Even in his repentance, Saul is not being genuine. He's not being sincere. He's going to suffer the consequences of non-repentance. So we see that sin is self-obsessive. Sin is self-deceptive. But then lastly, sin is self-destructive. Sin destroys the self because it puts us in the crosshairs of divine justice, a justice that will be served in one way, shape, or form. And there are three examples of this in this text. First, there's the example of the Amalekites. The Lord promised to wipe out this group of people 300 years before doing so here, seeking to do so here through Saul. And you wonder, well, why did so much time pass? Well, it could be because the Lord is slow to anger and he is patient in waiting for people to repent and when repentance doesn't come and the Amalekites never repent, they remain in the crosshairs and eventually the clock runs out. God is patient, but his patience doesn't last forever. And we must never mistake his patience with indifference. Eventually the clock will expire and the Amalekites learn this lesson the hard way and now they are an eternal example to those of us who think the Lord will forever ignore the sin in our lives. But then the second dynamic, there's the example of King Agag. And I imagine Agag thought he'd be spared. After all, King Saul kept him alive. Maybe he thought he would be spared divine justice, but then comes the prophet. And Samuel steps up and he does what Saul should have done. He calls Agag forward. He takes out a sword and we're told at the end of the chapter that he executes Agag justly. And Agag suffers the same destruction that he brought to other people throughout his reign and throughout his tenure as the ruler of the Amalekite people. Notice verse 33. As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. So you have the Amalekites, justice being served. You have Agag, justice being served. And then there's the example of Saul. And his kingdom is being ripped from him because sin puts everyone Jews and Gentiles alike, sin puts everyone in the crosshairs of divine justice. And if you think the Lord is gladdened by this, I would encourage you to think differently because this self-destructing nature of sin that understand that it grieves God's heart. And this is one of the underlying currents of this passage that we cannot miss. That the Lord's heart is grieved deeply in response to Saul and what Saul has done. Notice verse 10. Verse 10 says, the Lord, or the Lord says, I regret. Now, circle that word regret because it's an important word. This word is also translated repent. The Lord is essentially saying, I repent, I regret. Then you drop down to verse 35 and you find it there too. The Lord regretted, the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, when this word pops up in this moment, understand that this word is speaking to the grief that the Lord is feeling and sensing in his heart. And the reason why I say that is because this is the same word that pops up in Genesis chapter six, right before the Lord would flood the earth. In Genesis chapter six, verse five, it says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted or the Lord repented that He had made man on the earth. And then here's the parallel expression and He was deeply grieved. It was an emotionally charged term that reveals to you and I that the Lord is not a passive robotic deity. This is a term, when used to describe the Lord in this moment, it is a term that speaks to his passion. It speaks to his emotions. It reminds us that the Lord is a person. And he feels what we feel, and yet he feels what we feel in an infinitely deeper capacity. And so when he is grieved by sin, and he is grieved by the consequences that sin brings into people's lives, understand that the grief that he feels even in the justice that he's going to divvy out, that grief is infinitely deeper and infinitely more intense than the grief you and I feel when we read a passage like 1 Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and want to accuse the Lord with wrongdoing. Or we want to accuse the Lord of being unjust. The Lord fills everything in an infinitely deeper compa- uh, capacity and that includes the grief that he feels about making Saul king and seeing Saul go the way that he that he did you see nonchalance or indifference is never described as an attribute of God he is not nonchalant he is not indifferent he is a God who feels deeply and that is true for the grief he has over sin but it's also true for the love that he has for sinners like you and I our God feels things deeply and that brings us to a paradox in this passage A paradox arises in verse 29, because verse 29, you hear something that seems different from what we just read. Verse 29, it says, The Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change, and the same word repent or regret is found there. He does not lie or change. It's a variation of the same term. He does not change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. And so what are you to make of these dynamics? Well, I think we can affirm two realities about who God is. On one hand, he is a God who deeply feels. But on the other hand, he's also a God who stands firm to his word, to his promises, to his character, to his will. And so he feels deeply on one hand, but he's also firm in his resolve to bless those who bless his people and to curse those who curse his people. He is firm in his commitment to save sinners, and he is firm in his commitment to execute justice in the face of sin. He is both and all the time. On one hand, he is a merciful God who feels compassion for those who are sinful and suffering, but he's also a just God who is, whose holy indignation is aroused in response to sin and disobedience and disregard to who he is and to what he is about. And so although he regrets making Saul's king, he's not going to change his mind about ripping the kingdom from him. His heart is grieving, but his justice is also guarantee. Both are true. Grief and guarantee are happening in this text. And the reason why this is so significant for us is because what makes the sin and consequences in this story, what makes it so sad and so tragic is that Saul was a man who broke bad despite the fact that a mountain of grace was poured over his life. If you look at verse 17, it says that the Lord anointed Saul king over Israel. This was an act of sheer grace. Saul did not ask to become king. Saul did not seek to become king. This was God's free choice. This was God's free decision to put Saul in this position. But this sovereign grace, the Lord anointing him to be the first king, Saul still broke bad in the face of it. He began to make small compromises that erupted in huge moral catastrophe. And it happened essentially when Saul seized the kingdom for himself rather than serving the kingdom for the glory of God, rather than trusting the Lord's instructions, he took matters into his own hands, editing what the Lord had said in order to fatten his own pockets. And so when you come to the end of this sad and serious story, you find that God's people are in need of a new king. (laughs) They're in need of a new anointed one because it's been ripped from Saul as an act of divine justice. And what you're going to find in the very next chapter is that God gives a placeholder. He gives the people a placeholder in the person of David and in David's descendants who would come after them. And these, these rulers would occupy a position that was just a temporary placeholder until the true and greater David, the son of David, arrived on the scene. And when Jesus the Christ stepped up and he begins to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he tells the world, repent and believe the gospel, turn and trust in me, The good news that God's anointed one, the the king of kings, that he has come not to seize the kingdom for himself, but to serve the kingdom for the glory of God. This is why Jesus would say, look, I have not come to erase one iota of the Lord's instructions. I have not come to edit or change what he has commanded or what he expects from human beings. He says in Matthew 5, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus would be the king that Saul failed to be. He would be the one who did not partially obey his father. He totally obeyed his father, obeying his father in every moment of every day as he journeyed through his life towards the cross. And his obedience continued to the point of death, even death there when Jesus would give up his life. And when Jesus dies on the cross, that's the moment when God's people see the Lord's justice being divvied out in such a way that should heighten our appreciation for Christ and what he has done for us. And what you see going down in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is just a drop in the ocean of divine justice that would rush upon the Savior when he's breathing his last breath on the cross. You see, the gospel does not mean that the Lord sets his concerns for justice aside. The gospel does not mean that the Lord prefers mercy over justice. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, where he lived and died on the cross, means that the Lord found a mysterious and infinitely wise way to uphold the demands of his justice while at the same time extending mercy to sinners who don't deserve it. At the cross is where the justice of God and the mercy of God kiss. At the cross, we see that the Lord's justice will be served. It will either be served by Jesus dying in our place or it will be served by those of us who reject that grace and choose to go our own way. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't the Lord preferring mercy over justice. No, the gospel is the Lord upholding his concern for justice because he is firm, while at the same time extending mercy to sinners because he is feeling. He loves and cares deeply for sinners like you and me. And so God's justice will be served in some way, shape, or form. It will either be served by sinners like you and I, or like Saul, or like Agag, or like the Amalekites, or it will be served by Jesus. And I, for one, am, am looking to Jesus. This is why I love Jesus. This is why I trust Jesus. This is why I believe in Jesus. is because he did something for me that I could never do for myself. And so at a young age, I repented, and I trusted in Christ. I gave Jesus my life. I surrendered to his instructions. I surrendered to his will. I surrendered to his work, and I did that in response to the grace that he has shown me in the crucifixion and the resur- resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's so much about the Lord that I cannot fully comprehend, even stuff in this text that I cannot fully or adequately explain or or comprehend clearly, but what I can't fully comprehend, I can apprehend to the point where I'm adoring Jesus. Apprehend to the point where I'm adoring Christ and what He has done for me as He went to the cross, and he experienced the justice of God in my place, and he suffered and died for my sins, so that now I live in light of the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ that I have put my faith in the cross of Christ to the point that I'm no longer in the crosshairs of divine justice and that's a far more liberating and a far more joyful place to be than in the latter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to receive what your spirit may be speaking to us in this moment and if there's anyone here who's still living in the crosshairs of your justice because they have not looked to the savior for deliverance And for salvation and for grace, I pray that you would move among them in a way that would change that. That you would call them to the cross of your son. That you would give them grace to turn their eyes upon Jesus and to fix them there for all of eternity. And God, as we fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus, we see the beauty of your justice and the beauty of your mercy all rolled into that moment. And we Worship you now in light of it. We trust you for who you are and for what you have done to rescue people like us. Thank you, God. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.